Hey there, Sexy Techies. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. It's good to be home after a couple of weddings this past month, uh, both for my cousins. Um, Two of my cousins got married, not to each other, uh, two separate weddings. Uh, (laughs) They live in the north. I'm just kidding. (laughs) Both in Massachusetts. Uh, This last one was in Cape Cod. Yes. Yeah. It was it was good. It was a lot of travel this past month, but it was beautiful. It's nice that um you're one of the older cousins and that we can you have younger cousins that are now in the, the age where they're getting married, so it's fun. So we still have some weddings to go to. Yeah, yeah, I'm excited. Shout out to May's parents if they listen to our podcast. Thank <laughs> you for watching our kids so we could have a long weekend away. Yes. That was that was clutch. So I don't know why it always takes forever to get pictures back from a wedding. Um, I know. Well, no, I do know why. I have I have friends who are photographers. It's a lot of editing, and I mean they're just they're snapping away thousands of shots in a matter of hours. So there's a lot to go through. But okay, I did know why, but I was kind of building into a segue. <laughs> okay, sorry. <laughs> I mean, if you really want to know why? <laughs> but yeah, and I'm excited to see the pictures uh, from both of these weddings when they get posted on Instagram. Yeah. Well, I've seen some. I've seen some sneak peeks from one of the weddings, actually both of them, because I think that's a thing that like photographers in the industry do. They know how long it takes to go through all the photos and edit them. And so they kind of get like four or five like clutch photos that they edit and then send like the next day to the bride and groom so that they can post it on Instagram. Ah, okay. Well, since we mentioned Instagram, (laughs) did you see what I did there? Ah, yes. (laughs) (laughs) let's talk about the gram (laughs) we got some positive feedback on the last episode we did on the startup story of twitch Mm -hmm. and like i said i want to do more of those and today's episode we're going to be starting off with the startup story of instagram oh exciting this is like totally giving you a tech boner (laughs) (laughs) well it's also more in your wheelhouse uh you said last time you know neither of us really used twitch no Um, right yeah yeah. You, I know, love the Instagram. I, I, yes, I use it. I'm not as like up to date on how to use Instagram as like actual content creators and influencers know how. I don't even really know how to use stories or reels. What do you mean actual content creators? Because uh, oh right, yeah, no, <laughs> you are. gotta start start uh, dressing for the part here. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I have um, what is it called? Imposter syndrome. <laughs> <laughs> well, we all do. Yeah. <laughs> Most content creators. But do. you are a content creator. Sure, uh, sure. I don't yeah. really like the word influencer. Uh, I'm not really trying to influence anybody, but we're putting content out I mean, there. Sure, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so there's actually a lot of similarities and some key differences between the Instagram and Twitch stories. Um, okay. And yeah, we'll talk about some of those. But to set the scene, I'm going to take you back to 2009. Okay. Oh, oh the fashion there was was interesting okay Okay, so your mind goes to fashion (laughs) yes what what was the fashion of 2009 um thinner eyebrows uh longer tunic shirts layered pretty sure bumpets were a thing what's a bumpet oh please i love like oh the hair thing yeah (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) it's what i like still try to do with my hair (laughs) infinity scarves i think made their debut in 2009 maybe the early 2000s Oh, it was it was my jam. All right. Well, uh, I like that. That's where your mind goes when I mention a year. <laughs> no, yeah. What did I wear then? <laughs> yeah, uh, I know what I wore then. <laughs> the same thing you're wearing today. <laughs> I'm like Doug Funny. <laughs> so in 2009, 
a guy named Kevin Sistrom, was about three years out of college at Stanford. Okay. All right. So he's living in Silicon Valley still. Um, and he worked for a startup called Next Stop. Okay. Uh, he's a product manager. Mm. Uh, before that, he worked at Google, actually. And he was teaching himself how to code at night. Oh. So he wasn't an engineer. Uh, he didn't know how to code, yeah. uh, you know, coming out of college. So as he was teaching himself how to code, uh-huh. he decided he, build an, he wanted to build an app. Okay. He was interested in the check-in apps that were popular at the time. Like, do you remember Foursquare? Yes. Yeah. And we talked about Foursquare, but yeah. So yeah, yeah, that's yeah. like a check-in app. Exactly. So yeah, we talked about Foursquare on a previous episode. It was a location check-in app. So right. So basically you could let people know, hey, I'm here right now. And anybody else, any of your friends uh, that were around could be like, could come meet up with you. Right. I think they, they gamified it, right? So you could be like the mayor of certain places. Oh, yeah. You remember that? I, I forgot about that component of yeah. it. Yeah. I never used Foursquare, but uh, some of our friends were big into it. And oh, they uh, checked in everywhere. Though. Yeah. They wanted to be the mayor of as many yeah. places as they could or the king or whatever. I you think it was be. the mayor. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so funny. he thought that those were going to be huge, like a lot of people did at the time, including venture capitalists. Mm-hmm. Uh, they put a lot of money into check-in apps. So he decided to create one of his own. And he named it Bourbon. B-U-R-B-N. Also big at the time was removing letters from yeah. the <laughs> names of your startups. Why would you do that? <laughs> well, I don't know. Um, probably Bourbon spelled correctly was not available. Right. Uh, oh, oh that's, that's actually a clever thing. Yeah. To make it trendy to take out letters. Yeah, exactly. So that the domain Yeah, you need exists. the domain. So uh, he was into fine whiskey and bourbon. Um, mm. But... The app had nothing to do with that. So it was a check-in app. And so the reason that these apps were becoming popular was because the, like we talked about with Twitch, the technology really just started enabling users to to do this sort of thing. Yeah, like geolocation. Yeah, geolocation. So the iPhone had come out in 2007, so two years before. Mm -hmm. Um, It was a new mode of communication, like sharing your location with people, Mm -hmm. real-time check-in, that sort of stuff. So he created this app on nights and weekends and put it out there and signed up initially like 60 or so users, mostly family and friends Mm -hmm. and friends of friends, Mm -hmm. just to give it a try. So it was just like Foursquare, except you could also add pictures to your location check-in. Okay. Let's say uh, I'm at the local saloon. (laughs) Are we in like the Western, (laughs) like old Western era? And (laughs) You walk in with your spurs. (laughs) Yeah. You know, swing those doors open. (laughs) And the, uh, you know, I take a picture Mm -hmm. of maybe all the taps that they have or... The piano man. The piano man. Yeah. The spittoon. Yes. Yeah. And... I can post it on this app, Bourbon, uh-huh. and I can write a little tag about it. Yeah. And it says where I am. So cool. maybe if any of our, my friends are around and they want to come by, they'll park their horse right outside and mosey on in. <laughs> or if they want to have a shootout, <laughs> they know where <laughs> yeah, to find you. Exactly. That's you. <laughs> Shortly after launching, he decided to go to a bar where he knew that a bunch of investors were hanging out and meeting up with people who were starting startups. I love how that there are bars that are known for that in Silicon Valley, only in Silicon Valley. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty cool, huh? Yeah, no, that's that's cool. And he showed it to a guy, an investor named Steve Anderson. He showed him his app. Mm-hmm. He was the only one that he talked to that was kind of interested in it. And he invited him to coffee to talk more about it. Mm-hmm. So they went out to coffee uh, shortly after. Mm-hmm. And while he was showing him the app on his phone, he was getting all of these alerts and... Steve asked him what those alerts were. Mm -hmm. And he said, oh, I programmed it so I get an alert every time a user signs up. 
Mm, okay. And so at first Steve was like, are, is it like, are you just having people sign right, up right yeah, now? Because you're, time. yeah, because you have a meeting with me, like a lot of people. <laughs> yeah, like and he's point. like, no, I, I swear I didn't plan that. We're, we just happened. He didn't really even know why, uh, you know, they maybe got like five or 10 yeah, signups at that time. That's funny. So Steve was like, okay, I'm interested. Count me in for $50,000. Dang. But the catch is, I want you to find a co-founder. Mm, yeah. Accountability partner. An accountability partner. That's what I'll partner. call it from now on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Startups are hard. Mm-hmm. They are much harder when you try and do them alone. Yeah. I think we've talked about this before too. Yeah. Yeah. Steve knew that and Kevin probably agreed. Mm-hmm. So he went out and, you know, he's looking for a co-founder. Yeah. So... Kevin knew a guy named Mike Krieger. They were acquaintances in college, Mm -hmm. but he happened to run into him at another coffee shop in Silicon Valley because not only do you meet up with investors in coffee shops, you also just sit around and work and program in coffee shops in Silicon Valley. I I thought you were going to say like, this is the coffee shop where most like potential (laughs) (laughs) co-founders I think that's any coffee shop, Silicon Valley. Yeah. So Mike was a designer and an engineer Mm -hmm. at another company in Silicon Valley. And Kevin just happened to run into Mike. You sure he didn't see that he checked in on Foursquare? (laughs) (laughs) No, I don't know. Maybe. How strategic. (laughs) So Kevin showed Mike the app that he was working on, Bourbon. Mm -hmm. So Mike thought it was really interesting. And they actually joined up and decided to work on it together. So he found his co-founder pretty quickly. Yeah, he found his forever friend. Yeah. That's what I would call him. (laughs) It doesn't always work out that way for founders of startups, but we'll see how it goes for Kevin and Mike as Ooh, we uh, as the story progresses. I'm so invested. Yeah. It's a little hook. Yeah, I'm just yeah. reeling you right in. Right. So Steve actually decided, the, the investor that he met, mm-hmm. decided to increase his investment to $250,000. Now that he has a co-founder? Well, I, I, he said he would only invest fifty dollars if he got a co-founder, but yeah. oh. something caused him to change his mind maybe it was all those dings and he thought about it a little afterwards uh, those alerts (laughs) and because in silicon valley when one investor invests in you it's like the sign for like like the sharks start circling they smell the blood yeah exactly there's like some chum out there and nobody wants to miss out right so andreessen horowitz one of the most famed investors in silicon valley oh i hear he's very handsome (laughs) <laughs> okay that's actually two last names oh. uh, <laughs> so which one are you talking about um, both of them <laughs> just trying to get on their good side <laughs> so uh they decided to match that investment they they also uh invested two hundred fifty thousand dollars. wow so these two guys had five hundred thousand dollars kevin and mike for basically a prototype with about 60 beta users and so they got to work and they worked on it for a few months. You want to guess how many users they got up to after a few months of working so on they bourbon? they started on like 60 as in a beta prototype. And in a few months, mm-hmm. a thousand. That would have been better. Um, they got up to about 100 users after a few months of working is on bourbon. Good? I don't know. Is that no, that's good not bad? good. Okay. That's what I kind of thought. But I didn't want to say like, oh, and then you'd be like, no, <laughs> you're not in the industry. You don't know. <laughs> Come on, May. You got a scratch and claw for every user. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you kind of do at the early stages, but they had no momentum at all. Mm, okay. um, they they didn't know how to grow it. And they, they realized that people didn't really even like the check-in feature of oh, the app. Interesting. But what they did like was the photo sharing feature of the app Mm -hmm. they liked that they could take a picture somewhere and tag it yeah at a specific location they thought that was pretty cool yeah 
And when Mike joined the company, that's actually the piece. So he was a designer. That's actually the piece that he was most excited about anyway, was the photos. Yeah, because he's a designer, the aesthetic part of it. Exactly. Yeah. So, you know, a few months into working on Bourbon, they decided to pivot to a photo sharing app. They it, it was still called Bourbon at okay. first. Interesting. And they were they were kind of burned out on, you know, trying to get traction for mm-hmm. Bourbon and mm-hmm. make it work. So Kevin and his then girlfriend, now wife, they decided to take a vacation. Mm-hmm. And while they were walking on the beach, Kevin actually got a pretty significant insight from his girlfriend, Nicole. So he told her that they were going to pivot to a photo sharing app Mm -hmm. and she actually really liked that idea because she said she liked seeing all of the photos people took and posted on bourbon but she also said i I probably won't post my own pictures uh, but i like looking at other people's okay and so kevin was like huh why why wouldn't you post your own photos like don't you want to support my app (laughs) (laughs) and she was like yes i do but you know other people's photos just look so much better than mine And she named somebody who happened to be one of their friends who was using the app. And Kevin said, well, he he just uses a different app and applies filters to make his photos look nicer. And then he posts them on bourbon. Right. And she was like, oh, well, you should build that into bourbon then. Yeah. Oh, I see where we're going with this. And that's where the idea for filters came. And what shortly after this was renamed Instagram. Wow. And that that is like that's the draw that got me onto Instagram is like these cool filters that just like really heighten the photos that you post. I love that. Oh, that's interesting. I didn't know that. So I heard in an interview actually that a lot of their early users didn't even realize that Instagram was a social network. They only used Instagram for putting filters <laughs> for applying filters, filters to photos. Um, so did I. Oh, really? When I first got onto Instagram, somebody showed me like what it can do to your photos. And actually, I feel like if you go back to like my first photos, there's no captions or anything because I was literally just using it to filter photos and then send them to people. And then post them on Facebook. Well, and, but no, but they post on Instagram, you know, when you're when you're done filtering oh, okay. them. And I just never deleted them. There's a couple of reasons that they thought the timing was right for this photo app. So before this, uh, if you'll remember back... Get get hop in the wayback machine. Okay. Uh, <laughs> for I'm gonna see what like what I was wearing at the time. <laughs> uh, social networks for photos were mostly done on the desktop. Do you remember you had to before you could use your phone? You really had to take a picture with a point and shoot digital camera. Digital camera, yeah. And you hooked it up to your. You computer. You had to hook it up to your computer. With the USB. Yeah. Transfer the. F- the files yeah. and then upload them to Facebook. Oh, right. For sure. Yeah. And that was slow and it was a pain and. I never did it because one, I didn't take a camera everywhere. And uh, two, I didn't have the patience for that. I know you did it. Oh, absolutely. It's okay. I did it for you. (laughs) Yeah. You made albums and all that stuff. Oh, yeah. So around this time was when the first phones were coming out that actually had a high quality enough camera. Yeah, like a decent camera. Yeah, to not need a point and shoot digital camera anymore. Right. So the first few iPhones even, their cameras were pretty terrible. Oh, Um, yeah. The, it wasn't until the iPhone 4 that could kind of, it could produce images that were high quality enough that you didn't have to take your camera around. Do you know when the iPhone 4 was? Like what year? The iPhone 4 came out in like mid 2010. Okay. Okay. I don't remember exactly when 
I had a Blackberry Pearl, but I remember thinking like it took really good pictures and I had a lot of pictures on it that I would put on social media from my Blackberry Pearl. And when you look back at those now. Oh my God, they were tragic. (laughs) So yeah, so, you know, people were now, basically everybody, right, was now in possession of a device that could take good quality pictures and they brought it with them everywhere they went. Right, yeah. What a good time for this. Yeah, and, you know, not everybody yet, but... They knew that they soon would be, right. right? This technology was coming. It was only going to get more pervasive, yeah. cheaper. There were going to be some better options out there soon. And so they were banking on that. One of the other key decisions they made early on was not to follow a Facebook-like strategy of mm. requiring users to be friends. So mm. I reach out with a friend request. You accept it. Then we're friends. I see your photos. They wanted it to be more open. Mm-hmm. So they went with a follower model Mm. instead of a friend model like Facebook, which really did open it up. It really did. And they were the first to do it for a photo sharing only app, Mm -hmm. basically a photo first app. Yeah, that's interesting. Because I remember when I first signed up for Instagram, I was hesitant with the either everything's public or you're you're super private. Mm -hmm. You can't be like, I liked how on Facebook, you could filter the people that you share specific content with. But I understand that that's because there's so much more content that you can share on Facebook, like your personal information, the groups that like, and so you can filter every like section of Facebook. Whereas for Instagram, it's really just pictures. Right. So I started with a public profile and I never changed since. Yeah. And the default is what most users are going to use because most users aren't going to change it. So by making it default open and public, Mm -hmm. they knew that most people were going to stay that way. Yeah. So it only took them eight weeks from the time they initially sketched out the kind of this pivoted app to when they launched on the Apple App Store. And they only launched on Apple at this time. So they launched in October 2010. Okay. That's when they launched the first version of Instagram. How many people do you think they got to sign up in the first day? Well, if Bourbon got up to 100 users, I would think 150. 150 would have been decent. They got 25,000 people to sign up in the first 24 hours. Holy moly. What was the marketing strategy there? So Apple gives you like 100 invites that you can send out through the app store or at least they did at the time oh interesting um they used them to send to tech journalists Mm. um some designers that they found online that they thought might be interested in the app that's cool yeah so just people like that uh people that they thought would be interested and also thought that would write about it yeah um yeah and it caught on like wildfire yeah clearly it was pretty amazing so their servers were going down all the time. Oh. Um, they actually had one server. They admittedly didn't really know what they were doing on the, the server side yeah. uh, at the time. But the good thing for them was the cellular networks at the time weren't that great. And I'm guessing this might have been around the time. Do you remember there was an iPhone that dropped calls like nonstop and people didn't know why for like months or even like a year? And then Apple finally came out and said, oh, sorry, guys, um, it's where you're holding the phone. The yes. the way it's designed yeah. is like if you hold it in a certain way, you're kind of blocking the uh, signal like the yeah, the whatever the radio. Yeah. Uh, and, Receptors. Or something. Yeah. Yeah. I um, do remember that. Wow. So, you know, people were kind of blaming this technology was still 
fairly early. So uh, they kept coming back. And I think that's how you know you have a really good product, right? right. Like it's crashing all the time. Yeah. People are blaming other things yeah. for it. <laughs> but Kevin Systrom said they always felt like they were going to fail, right? Mm-hmm. They just, mm-hmm. even though they took off immediately, they had all these problems uh, on the back end. Mm-hmm. And it just felt like they could never keep it up. Mm-hmm. But people didn't really care. Aww. They just kept coming back. That's great. So by December 2010, Instagram had 1 million users. Oh my gosh. That's like, what, two months, three months? Yeah. A couple months after launch, they got up to a million users. Investors were showing up at their offices uninvited. Oh my gosh. Take my money. Exactly. They were just trying to put their money into the company. wow. So in February 2011, what's that, maybe five months after they launched, they raised $7 million of funding at a 25-ish million dollar valuation. Oh my gosh. Good for them. Yeah, I would say so. It's funny listening back and like reading about what the founders were thinking at this time. Mm -hmm. They said there were two times they really felt like they were on to something. The first was in January 2011. So right before they took that round of funding, Snoop Dogg started using Instagram. Nice. That's that's a brand ambassador for you. (laughs) Well, okay. If that's not good enough for you, then about a year later, President Obama signed up for Instagram and started using it as part of his second campaign. Oh, wow. No, I mean, I was impressed with Snoop Dogg. (laughs) Now I'm like super impressed. So one year after launch, remember I said they were at about 1 million in December 2010? Right. Within a year later, they had grown to 10 million users. Oh my gosh. That is steep growth. It's crazy. And all this time, the founders were just expecting growth to stall. Right. Like because you've you've heard before, like products will take off, but then there will be, you know, some point where it's just like it's just kind of tapers. Yeah, it stops and, and, and you don't know why necessarily. Right. And it's hard to get to that next stage. And they were just waiting for that to happen. So Instagram wasn't the only app to be in this space, of course, even when they launched, you know, there were other apps out there doing some components of these things. There were apps that did filters for mm-hmm. photos. There were apps like Facebook, which was, you know, not really mobile first yet. Also didn't drive the product around photos. So Twitter also allowed photos to be uploaded, uh, but they were kind of secondary to text on the app. Right. But after other engineers saw the success of Instagram, you know, they they wanted in on the action. Mm -hmm. So other apps started popping up left and right. Uh, Some of them had millions or even tens of million dollars of funding before they even had a product launch. Wow, because they just knew how successful that idea could be. Yeah, they wanted they wanted in on that. And the investors, they didn't get in early enough on Instagram. So right. they said, well, we'll back another company that will do the same thing. Yeah. The founders of Instagram, you know, they were, I think they were a little worried about them at the time. But in hindsight, they didn't have too much to be worried about. Instagram kept growing. And by April 2012, it had 50 million users with only 13 employees. Oh my gosh. Oh, that's How can you <laughs> Well, yeah, they I mean they grew amazingly fast on the user side and remarkably they didn't have to add employees to scale to that number. I mean, 13 is such a low number of employees to have that many users. My gosh. And so at that same time in April 2012, Facebook approached them about an acquisition. Mm. And, you know, after some negotiation, they agreed on a price of $1 billion in cash and stock. Wow. For those 13 people? For the company. Yeah. So, yeah. So those 13 employees and the founders became 
Facebook employees. Mm-hmm. Actually, they kept Instagram running sort of as a subsidiary of, of Facebook. Mm-hmm. Um, so they get to, the founders got to keep running the show. Mm-hmm. And Kevin and Mike actually stayed at Facebook until September 2018. Oh, wow. Yeah, so they stayed for six years, uh, over six years after the acquisition, which mm-hmm. is kind of a long time for founders to stay yeah. after their company gets acquired. But they could call most of the shots still, I think, on the product. Yeah, right. Um, it was still their baby. Yeah. So they, they stayed until then. When they left, they cited, you know, that they basically said they wanted to go work on something else. Right. Um, you know, maybe take some time off and then start something else. Mm-hmm. As most entrepreneurs do. Yeah. So... I want to know. So are they are they forever friends? <laughs> well, I don't know about forever, but they are still great friends. Aww. Kevin and Mike are. Um, they are currently working on another startup called Artifact. Okay. I don't want to get into too much about what it does because maybe we'll talk about it on another uh, episode. It's Can I guess? It's pretty based new. On, based on the name Artifact? Yeah, go for it. You take a picture of something and then it tells you the history of where it came from. Okay. Uh, well, we'll find out. <laughs> I can tell you that's not it, but oh, great guess. Like, why would somebody want that? <laughs> so today, just to wrap things up, Instagram has over 2 billion active users. So that is about a quarter of the world's population wow. is on Instagram. Yeah. Well, because you know what? What? It doesn't matter what language you speak, pictures are universal. That is very true, both in a odd cliche sort of way, like the way that you said it, and in a factual sort of way. (laughs) If you haven't already, take a quick break, go and hit the subscribe button in your podcast app. It may be called subscribe, it may be called follow. I've even seen it called collect in one app, which is really a strange way of saying it, but just go tap that button. It'll make sure you get our episodes as soon as they come out, and it'll help us out a lot. So Tony, going to all of these events and weddings really brought me back to like my event planning days um, mm, DC. in DC when I was like this. 20-something. Yeah, event planner, clicking my high heels around in event venues or whatever. And it really made me think, of doing a little bit more research into like the event industry market because there were such like cute things that we saw at your cousin's weddings that are so trendy now yeah i i agree i i saw so many cute things at these weddings (laughs) like a donut wall (laughs) oh (laughs) i had no idea what things you were talking about actually (laughs) oh you did oh you were (laughs) no they're they're just like all the and, and maybe again like i my eye like i have this like radar for these like cutesy things because it was embedded in me to look for you know little touches of of unique things everywhere so i started doing some research on the whole special events industry and then i realized that like you can even drill down so much to very like niche events that are still a huge market and are trending like so big. So the special events industry as a whole is like a $32 billion industry. And then a subsector of that is party supplies. And the party supplies market was about $13.2 billion last year. So it's like a little under half of what all the special events market is. And by in five years, 2028, it's expected to reach um, about $21.1 billion. So like, what are we talking about with party supplies? I'm thinking like 
balloons and streamers and like uh, photo walls or whatever I mean, they're yeah, called? Yeah, kind of. So like they had like four uh, like main party supplies. One was balloons. Balloons are huge. Balloons are even huger now. Huger? More huge now. Bigger. Bigger. Mm. <laughs> balloons are bigger now than they were like in events 10 years really? ago. Balloons are also surprisingly expensive. Oh, For yes. like good balloons. For, yeah, like really quality balloons. But like 10 years ago, I'd say people thought balloons were like so cheesy. and But they were easy to kind of sculpt and create from. And so now I think people are utilizing the aesthetic of balloons in a better way. I have an idea. Yes. This whole balloon conversation just made me think about it. Okay. Balloons are disposable and they're expensive. Someone should be able to create reusable balloons mm. that you, mm. you know, you use them for your wedding. Uh, maybe you put a deposit down on top of whatever you've paid for them and then you get that deposit back. Yeah. Um, they'd be cheaper. They'd be better for the environment. Yeah. Um, Absolutely. Whoever's listening and... Someone take that idea. Yeah. I'm not into the balloon industry, but like somebody that is. But like, like someone who's like a scientist. There's got to be a reason to do this. I mean, yeah. there's there's got to be a way to do this. I like that. Well, that is one of the trends now is to find more sustainable. Like people are more environmentally conscious um, during events in current days. And so finding more sustainable products is one of the things that's trendy now. But besides balloons, tablescapes, platters, and servingware. Okay. Um, because there's a certain aesthetic that you can get from different, I mean, utensils that you even use. I remember when I was like in my catering days, we would have like a whole setup of what a tablescape would look like because, you know, that I mean, that really sets your room apart from, from other places. So that that's what they mean by like party supplies. Okay. There's this increasing popularity of like themed parties in the corporate world. There's uh, popularity around virtual parties. And then for weddings, there's this growing trend for destination weddings. And so these are some of the factors that are really like propelling this market forward. Okay. But the big thing that I would say that's making parties such a huge deal is the growing influence of social media. So as we said, when we're talking about Instagram, it's so easy to take a picture of something and post it and everyone's everyone feels like they're already part of this party and they're like, wow, I want to throw a party that looks like that. Like the, the look of a party becomes more viral and is easily spread um, than word of mouth and, and things. So trends just get so easily picked up because you can just spread that visually. Yeah, that makes sense. And the fact that like social media is just like so pervasive like in our lives, it's really impacted the party supply market. It drives trends, it inspires and motivates um, different party themes. And yeah, it's it's able to showcase aesthetically pleasing celebrations. And then so consumers are eager to create these events themselves and invest in more like trendy and eye-catching party supplies because the more eye-catching it is the better that it's it can be instagrammed instagram yeah drilling down a little bit more the birthday party industry in and of itself is a booming business can you guess uh the estimate of how much americans spend annually on birthday parties like each family or all americans all americans oh too much um let's see there's I don't know, let's say 400 million Americans. I think that's a little high. Uh, I don't know how many of them have a party. I'm going to say a quarter. 100 million times too much money. So probably $500. $500 million. 3 billion annually. Yeah, on see, way parties. too much. 
But but the average cost, and I, you actually kind of said this. I was going to ask you, what do you think the average cost of um, one birthday party in the U.S. is? Well, I thought that I was over shooting at five hundred dollars and but really in the back of my mind i was like it's more than this yeah what is it well so it is five hundred dollars okay but when i looked at that i was like i feel like we spend so much more not like we well yes we yeah (laughs) but um well i I mean i was surprised at kind of how low that sounded but there's also a big difference between a three-year-old's birthday party and a like milestone birthday party yeah, like yeah a and sweet a, 16 yes or like a surprise 50th birthday of party course, right where it's right. a fancy might be a fancy dinner or something like that right or, you know different yeah, there's just a lot of different types so you gotta average it out that's true right so but uh, surprisingly right. you can spend a lot of money on a three-year-old's birthday you party sure can. in case anybody didn't know well yeah and so there's this like article in the New York Times that reported that in some of the most wealthy neighborhoods in LA, parents would like routinely spend five to six figures on fancy birthday parties for their toddlers. So like three-year-olds. Oh my God. I know. So, but I mean, so then it kind of has this question of like, who are these parties really for? And I am very open about saying like first birthday parties, we're celebrating one year of like surviving you know the newborn and like infant phase like for the parents the, you mean. yeah the the parents should also be celebrated so like the party is also for the parents as well uh yeah and and of course the more you spend the what the, like the the better you feel <laughs> <laughs> well I, so articles are saying that people are willing to spend more for so many different reasons but um, because they feel the need to celebrate their child. I, they said that, like children are like one of the biggest drivers of adult spending money, whether they ask for it or the parents feel like they owe it to their child. I definitely agree with that. I mean, children are a money suck for sure. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, fewer Americans are having children, so... Maybe people will save more in that case because <laughs> okay, that's that's some logic. Yeah, um, that's funny that you said that because they were talking. Uh, this one article that I was reading about was talking about how the pandemic has really shifted the need to throw parties post pandemic to a whole nother level. So, oh, like like to make them big, like blowouts. Yes. Well, I mean, so during the pandemic, people had like all this like pent up energy. Post pandemic, everyone was like YOLO, like you know, <laughs> yeah. like, let's let's spend all our money. And then, of course, the desire to like reunite with loved ones because everyone was like social distancing for so long. And well, then- there's also so much money out there, right? Like from all the stim- stimulus stimuli, mm-hmm. and that's about to run out. So we'll see if this trend continues. Okay. Well, but you know, something that you you can't control now. All the COVID babies that were born during COVID, they all need birthday parties. <laughs> well, they don't need them. and the, But if they if you think that they really do, they don't need to cost six figures. I know. But <laughs> beca- again, because of Instagram and like the height of being able to like showcase these parties, people just feel like, oh, this is the norm. This is what's happening. And especially now that people can get an inside look into famous people's Mm. birthday parties for their kids like the kardashians when they put and trust me like i'm not trying to get kardashian level with our parties like i know how ridiculous that is but some people see it and they're like 
oh, wow, I feel like I can throw a party like that. And then they try, maybe they try to DIY it. It doesn't really work. So then they hire vendors or that, you know, they, they outsource their, what they're supposed to be DIYing and then the, the money adds up. So yeah, I mean, it's just, it is for the children and the experience of the children. But what they're also saying is like the birthday party market is so much so for the adults as well. I mean, even when we look at um, the ven- the birthday party venues that are around us in our neighborhood. Yeah. And when I talk to other moms, it's just really funny because like when we talk about, oh, where's like a good place to have a birthday party? A lot of moms are like, oh, like, you know, XYZ place because they have a bar like right next to the area where you can watch the kids. And it's it is so much more of like creating a social um, atmosphere for the parents to be able to enjoy birthday parties because like let's be honest sometimes like a kid's birthday party can be if there's no adult entertainment that sounds weird <laughs> <A kid's laughs> birthday party <laughs> like if there's not a space for the adults to hang out and Correct. like yeah. enjoy themselves as well right yeah and and you do spend a good amount of time at children's birthday parties as a parent of a young child yeah probably I... at least once or twice a month I know or oh, even more so three or hours or so. Right. I feel like, you know, when I at every Monday, when every meeting or call I have, people would ask like, oh, how was your weekend? And it's usually like, oh, I was at a birthday party yeah. <laughs> or something. But also, I mean, even before social media um, and before like having a sneak peek into, you know, the glitz and glam of famous people's like children's birthday parties. There were still other things in the media world that kind of showcased lavish birthday parties. Do you remember like in the early 2000s MTV? I don't even know if you watched the show. It was called like My Super Sweet 16. I never saw that show, but I have heard of it. Yeah. And it just like showcased ridiculous Sweet 16 birthday parties. Mm -hmm. And it just like had little girls and boys like sitting there being like, I can have a party like this. And so... They've all grown up and tried to make birthday parties like that. Now, yeah, I guess there's over 25,000 party and event planning businesses in the U.S. and 134,000 people are employed in that industry just in America. And social events make up about half of the event planning market and three out of four event planner owners are female. So it is a very female dominated industry. Yep. But it's huge. And because of the growth, um, parties and like social events, you can definitely see some like party productions that have evolved in their trends throughout the year. So we kind of talked about the balloon industry and how, you know, that that goes into like kind of photo um, opportunities Mm -hmm. at at parties. So, I, you know, back in the day, it used to be just kind of like one backdrop with like a banner that said like happy birthday or congrats or something. Um, and they had like little photo booth props on sticks and, you know, you can take a picture. Well, even that is somewhat new, I think. Like I'm thinking right. in well, my mind, what you said at first was, is a birthday party, right? You've got some <laughs> balloons and you've got a little happy birthday. Maybe if it's a milestone, it says like happy 10th birthday. And you have a cake. Yeah, but now... <laughs> That's not what a birthday party is anymore. I mean, you know, and, and then from like the photo backdrop, then it would like, it turned into like photo booths. And so people yes. would like rent photo booths. Right, and there's like, vendors for the yep, booths. Yep, yep. And then now we're seeing at parties, there's photo booth and video experiences. Have you ever seen like the 360 
boomerang so it's this it's this thing that you can rent now um and it's like at all the like the parties and galas where you and a group of friends can like stand on this platform and there's this rotating camera that goes around 360 and you just kind of do like a dance or you know some you have props and stuff and it takes a 360 view of you and then it kind of goes backwards and it kind of creates this boomerang and a visual and a like visual file for you to be okay. able to like upload on Instagram or something like that. Oh, interesting. It does seem like every few years there's like a new thing yeah. uh, for weddings and stuff that comes out. Right. There's also um, VR settings, virtual reality settings where it puts you in like a virtual reality like backdrop so you're standing there and then all of a sudden you know the ground falls below you um and it turns into like a six second clip that you can upload onto mm, perfect for vine yes right <laughs> but- <laughs> i'm gonna post that to my vine account <laughs> so it's 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 come from like you know a photo booth or a backdrop to this and even just like the aesthetic of photo backdrop it's no longer you know that banner and and that it's it's the cascading balloons affixed to an archway that you know that that's just like the aesthetic trend that's popular now um even bounce houses mm-hmm. it's evolved the trend of bounce houses have evolved so back you know 10 years ago it used to be, be like you know whatever bounce house you can get um, you were like the cool kid that had a bounce house at your yeah. at your party, but it's always like bright colors. You like rented it from somewhere. But now gone are the days of like these like circus looking bounce houses. Now it's like these more like muted and like on theme colors, even maybe like with your child's name, like stamped to the side. Oh, wow. I haven't and, seen those oh, yet. Oh, no, they, they are bougie. And I've actually seen some influencers who like have that kind of like bounce house. Um, at their like child's first birthday party or whatever but there's like a sign that's like you have to be this certain age no food or drink in there like it has like all these things because it's such a clean looking because the clean aesthetic is like in for birthday parties even though it should be like bright colors and like chaos but like it's supposed to look really clean but you know it's a first birthday party right so kids are gonna be they say like there's like all these rules to use like a monochromatic bounce house like that so like most of these businesses so far all of these businesses so far seem like you know physical products physical goods mm-hmm. a lot of probably small businesses um you know small vendors some maybe are a little bit bigger but are there any are there any software companies uh in the space anything like really scalable yeah well actually that's so funny that you said that because my next thing I was going to talk about were invitations, just the general market of invitations. Oh, okay. Like back, you know, 10 years ago and even more so, paper invitations and print materials were so important and the presentation of what your invitation looked like. Yeah, especially for weddings. Right, I mean, right. But now... I'm still seeing most weddings have paper, right? I, I'm seeing the trend where it's it's going to into more of electronic invitations, mm. like through, I mean, Evite's been around for a while, paperless post, punch bowl, but now it's becoming a lot easier to be able to send out those invitations, collect RSVPs, um, and give your information on a website. So where you used to have like wedding invitations, where it was kind of a folio of information, you know, what the wedding schedule was, your reply card, your meal preference, all of that. 
you can just really, I mean, if somebody still wants like a, a hard copy of something in their hands mailed to them, you can send out like a save the date or a little postcard or something. And it has the wedding website on it. And that has all of the programs in it to collect RSVPs, um, to all the different events that you have. So if you have like a welcome party and you need a headcount for the welcome party, rehearsal dinner, um, you know, wedding itself, you can have an RCP for each of those. And it's just like a clickable thing. And you can, you know, type your preferences and and all that. I mean, I know those invitations, the paper invitations are not cheap, uh, especially for, you know, something like a wedding, if you want to use like the nicest stationery and whatever, and you're inviting or you've got yeah, 200 people on your guest list or whatever. So I guess anywhere you can cut costs and try and stay within your budget. Yeah. And think about how much easier it is for a bride who... And groom. And groom. Yes, because you do so much. Um, when, <laughs> when you... Before you send out the invitations, you have to wait for the RSVP card to come into the mail. You have oh. to put them into a system, check them off, and then put them into a seating chart. I remember the day. <laughs> Whereas now you can just, you know, extract or export the report from the program that you use to collect RSVPs and then you can automatically send the caterer, you know, all of the meal choices and then you can send the wedding planner all of the, you know, the seating chart that you can export from. So, Oh, can these things create the seating chart for you too? I think there are some that have that component into it. I just, I don't know because I haven't. At a wedding, Planned in the last a wedding decade, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I love seating. So if there isn't one that does that, where it collects the data and then you can put in the layout of your venue, and then you can actually like drag people to the seats that you want, that needs to be created. Hey, so I'm going to create that actually. <laughs> anybody who's gotten married recently, yeah. uh, we know a few of you at least. Reach out to May and just let her know. Yeah, if that's if that's a function, because if not, I want it to be. I think it's, uh, I love seating charts. So yeah, let's do it. Hey, what time is it? It is 10.53 p.m. No, it's not. What time is it? It's time for <laughs> our Hot Mom of the Week. Yeah. Whoa, last time I checked, I'm still hot, real hot. Okay, so we have talked about Instagram and how that's the gateway to influencers, content creators, sorry, sorry, content creators, mm-hmm. um, and just party trends and themes. So when I'm thinking of our Hot Mom of the Week, I... I'm thinking of somebody that I've been following for a couple of years now. Her name is Jane Williamson. Her handle is at Jane Insane underscore on TikTok and YouTube. And then just at Jane on Instagram. Was Jane Insane taken? <laughs> I know. Yeah. She needed the underscore. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I meant to go look for that, but I wasn't sure. <laughs> or she just like had a typo and just kept it. <laughs> but um, Jane uses her social media platform to playfully poke fun at common stereotypes like influencers and um, the stereotype that she calls the Utah mom. If you were to think of the Utah mom, like, do you have any thought of what that means? I'm afraid to <laughs> venture a guess at what the Utah mom stereotype is because yes, that's, 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 I'll leave it at that. Well, it, it's just a more like niche way of saying like the basic mom or like the basic bitch, even if you don't want to go into like the mom, just like a basic girl. So like somebody who has like that matching loungewear, 
They carry their Stanley Tumblr around. They, you know, their all their kids' toys are like the monochromatic beige and blush. There's no bright toys. Um, that's just because like the Utah mom or the basic mom just like really looks at these like aesthetically pleasing concepts. And a lot of times the Utah mom or the basic mom is an influencer because maybe they're stay-at-home moms and this is how they have a side hustle. Okay. Hadn't heard that phrase. So so she actually started just as a typical influencer. And, she, you know, she noticed that like most influencers, as we know, just kind of like glamorize moments in their lives. And she just kind of like caught herself doing that. And Um, doing like a lot of the same things that like other influencers do. So she decided to, instead of just broadcasting her life in this like shiny like way, she created comedic spoofs of how influencers not only portray themselves, but a lot of the stereotypes, you know, also associated with living in Utah. So she calls herself like the Utah mom. And so she does like funny things like, you know, she'll like kind of, do like a skit where she like narrates herself getting ready for her daughter's birthday party for instance and she's like today I woke up and and she has this um pretend daughter name um she calls her daughter chicken lee <laughs> why is it ch- chicken chicken lee chicken lee yeah well because like you know unique names these days like everyone's like you know not just like ashley it's like Ashley Lee or like (laughs) (laughs) okay well and and like the backstory behind that is like she was so inspired by Chick-fil-a that she named her child Chicken Lee it's all like made up but like this is just it is a funny name (laughs) so so she'll be like today I woke up and it's Chicken Lee's fourth (laughs) birthday and I get like I picked out matching outfits for ourselves but then like she'll show like the behind the scenes where like Chicken Lee's like I don't want to wear that she's like you have to Chicken Lee like and just like the you know pent up like anxiety that these influencer moms like tried to create like this picture perfect Mm -hmm. you know aesthetic for for social media but she she pokes fun at it I mean she is basically like a Utah mom herself but she doesn't want to be this like seen as like a cookie cutter mom and like she'll even do these things like this is you know what an influencer husband looks like and she she'll show her husband and he just like always like looks miserable like on purpose and and she's like how do you know it's on purpose <laughs> it's just it's really fun like you have to check it out <laughs> because like he'll just be there and she's like take my good side and like and she'll just like pretend to talk while he's like taking photos and she's like say, say you love me and he'll be like i love you and she'll be like oh my god <laughs> And he's just like, you know, it's deadpan dry, but um, she's really funny to follow. But she, I mean, she's doing a good job because she's making fun of influencers while being an influencer herself. Like she has a lot of collabs with different brands. Like, you know, she'll market different brands in her posts because she is an influencer, but um, she makes fun of them while she does it. So I think that's kind of funny. I like her style. So follow her on her Instagram. It's at Jane or TikTok at Jane Insane underscore. She got at Jane on Instagram? Yeah, right. So And she waited all the way until she had to get at Jane Insane <laughs> underscore for TikTok. I don't know. Jane, if you're listening, please explain the underscore. Yeah. <laughs> explain yourself. <laughs> we want to know. Like super early on Instagram, but like the last person to sign up to TikTok. I don't know. I wonder. I wonder. Um, I'd love to hear that story. Well, that's all we've got today. If you enjoyed the episode, hit the subscribe button. And reach out on social media dot coms and hot moms signing off